I'm Eddie. I'm Sammy. And this is Housewarming Party. Welcome to Housewarming Party, a podcast about watching the city move into phase two when you're still in phase 0.0. How are you doing, Eddie? Um, I was doing all right until you mentioned 0.0. <laughs> and now yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, this is such an odd, odd time. Yeah. It was strange enough going from zero to phase one. Yeah. And now to kind of fast forward to phase two seems a little fast to me. I know, and it's already been two weeks. It feels like phase one just kind of happened. Phase one has been two weeks. Yeah. I think they're happening in two-week periods, right? It's phase one, phase two, and then two weeks later, it's going to be phase three. Two weeks after that, it's going to be phase four. Math. Assuming everything... <laughs> Math. <laughs> Assuming everything kind of, like, works, you know, yeah. that that's kind of the trajectory, I think. Yeah. Well, now for an icebreaker. <laughs> Each episode, we'll pick a question from one of our icebreaker cards. Yeah, we've got, like, five of them. we'll pick a card every episode and take turns answering the question on that card if you want to play along at home you can send us your answer at housewarmingpartypod at gmail.com and we'll read it on next week's episode today's question is what is the best advice you've ever received you go first I need to think about it (laughs) every time I ask the question you always respond like I stabbed you with a pencil (laughs) how dare you you go first I need to address my wounds I would say, and I'm that one of the best relationship advices. Oof, that's terrible syntax. Uh, one of the best that. pieces of relationship re- advice <laughs> is not to take things personally. And I feel like that is probably for me kind of easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that like it's a kind of continual kind of kind of work in progress for me. So define that because like not take things personally sounds interest like that's an interesting piece of advice for a relationship you know so so yeah where does that come from why did somebody give you that advice and and why do you find it helpful i have to think about that one okay <laughs> that's fine um i think one of the best pieces of advice i've received has been from one of my therapists uh who just you know, in, in the course of our appointment, he, he kind of looked at me, he's like, Sammy, it's like you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. What would life be like if you just allowed yourself to enjoy something? It's so funny. Now you're reminding me that some of my best advice came from my therapist. Yeah. Yay, therapy. Yay, therapy. <laughs> We're big proponents of therapy here. Having said that, I'm certain that my friends and family have given me this advice often. Yeah. And it may not have been until my therapist said it that I thought, oh, that's a really good advice. Maybe I should listen. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was um, to give myself permission to feel what I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to overthink things mm-hmm. and immediately go from feeling something to trying to understand what it means and mm-hmm. why I feel that way and what that feeling is. And so yeah. it goes from feeling it to thinking what I'm feeling pretty quickly. Okay. Um, and so to kind of take that pause mm-hmm. and just kind of feel the feeling um, is a discipline for me. Mm. I like that. 
Remember, if you want to play along at home, send your answer to housewarmingpartypod at gmail.com and we'll read it on next week's episode. That's it for Icebreakers. And we're back. So last week we talked a lot about the role of non-black uh, people of color mm-hmm. as allies in combating white supremacy mm-hmm. and in becoming better allies. And in a strange way, it reminded me of our conversation two weeks ago. It was our anniversary episode, and we were talking about how we met. Um, and one of the first things you asked me in that conversation was where your transness kind of factored in for me. Okay. Um, and I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface around on that topic mm-hmm. um, because where it, the two issues connect for me is that issue of kind of allyness, you know. It made me think about my journey as an ally, mm-hmm. um, as a trans ally. Um, and then kind of fast forward to our conversation ne- last week, my journey as an ally, as a non-black person of color ally. Right. Right. And I was like, you know what? Both of those are kind of worth a deeper dive. Okay. And so I thought we kind of talk about that this week. How's that sound to you? Sounds good to me. So um, I guess what is... Would you describe that? How would you describe that journey in terms of like a journey towards allyship? Because I, I think you're—I mean, I'd, I'd love to know what you mean by that. But I also think you're right in that people don't start out allies just because they are well-intentioned. Yeah. You know, even if I can say, "Oh yeah, sure, I I support trans people in in the sense that I accept, you know, trans identity," or "I support black people because I have black friends." Like that's not enough. And in fact, in many ways citing, oh, I'm not racist, I have black friends, is is very yeah. counterproductive and very harmful. So it's not enough just to like like something or quote-unquote endorse something. Allyship requires more. And so what did that journey look like for you? You know, it's interesting. For me, mm-hmm. um, I'm reminded that I always start with the assumption that I'm a work in progress. Yeah. That... I carry internalized homophobia, that I carry um, anti-brownness in me, mm-hmm. um, that I carry anti-blackness um, in me. Mm-hmm. The fact that um, I carry all kinds of biases and prejudices that I spent a lifetime learning and I'm going to spend the rest of my lifetime unlearning. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think it, I don't know when I kind of came to that kind of acknowledgement, but as a starting point, it feels like a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much kinder to myself and probably much kinder to other people mm-hmm. um, because I assume that I I will never say I don't have a racist bone in my body right? Um, because at some point something's going to come out of my mouth yeah. or I'm going to treat somebody in such a way where my biases will reveal themselves. And so rather than deny the fact that I am a work in progress, right. I kind of and start with that. Um, and so when I think about how when we first met, you know, I had been working at Hetrick Martin with LGBT youth um, since 1999 for five years. Um, I was very vocal about the, um, what was it, the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance while I was living down there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an equal rights ordinance that would protect not just trans, not just LGBT people broadly, but 17, I think, categories of people from discrimination oh, wow. um, at the city level. Wow. Houston, um, I was going to say was, 
Houston is <laughs> the only large city in Texas, the only large city in the country that does not have an equal rights ordinance. Um, oh, so it didn't pass. So it did not pass. Please. And it's 2020. It uh, <sighs> failed in 2015. Yeah. I still have not forgiven the city of Houston for that. Um, because Dallas has it. Austin, um, of course, has it. I think San Antonio has it. Yeah. Um, every major city, New York, Chicago, also have it. And so I say that because I look back at some of my posts, and there, were, you know, I was very kind of vocal about kind of support of kind of issues affecting the trans community. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I always wonder if I if we had met earlier five years ago, if we may have met when I was in Houston, at my most vocal and my most woke, if we had mm-hmm. met um, in 1999, assuming um, we're the same ages that we are now. Sure. Um, if, if I would have dated you then, if I would have been open-minded enough. Right. Um, and I felt like, I don't know when that change happened. Right. I would like to think it was before I met you, mm-hmm. but it was definitely when I met you. Um, but I was not always as open to dating someone trans as I was as open to defending trans issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder how someone like me who worked professionally um, on LGBT issues, who worked with um, trans youth, who worked with trans adults, who was very vocal about these issues, still hadn't gotten to the point where I had considered that. And yeah. maybe I just, and I was going to say, Maybe it's because I um, didn't have a, enough close trans men and women in my circle, mm-hmm. which I think just kind of speaks more to the work that I need to do as an ally. If I wasn't that close to very many kind of um, trans men and women, mm-hmm. then maybe I had some more work to do than I realized. Yeah. I mean, forget about kind of dating somebody, um, just being friends with more trans people. Um, I don't know what the barrier was, but um, it's more work that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, I, 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 and part of me, I don't know if it's, I was really limited in my social spaces, um, a lot of kind of cis gay male spaces, a lot of bare spaces, um, a lot of very inclusive spaces in certain levels and categories, mm-hmm. um, but clearly not enough to kind of really have a diverse kind of mixed kind of group of friends and potential kind of boyfriends. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's, and I assume before I kind of like, um, kind of pat myself on the back for having kind of grown, I'm thinking, okay, if that just means that I'm further than I was before, um, but it also shows that if I was on a journey, then I must still be on it. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, and I look at some of the kind of the milestones in our relationship together, mm-hmm. um, learning about, um, things that would make you feel comfortable or safe. Yeah. Um, I think I was completely oblivious to your sense of physical safety um, in public in New York. Mm. And to me, that just kind of spoke to my privilege as a kind of masculine presenting, older, thicker, kind of cis, gay, Puerto Rican man. Mm-hmm. And all those things that those identities kind of communicate to the people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, living in Harlem, um, and all the other kind of environments that affirmed 
and protected my identities. Yeah. I just was not as kind of tuned into how you might feel in some of those same spaces. Yeah. Um, I think there was even certain times where we'd go out together and places that I might recommend because I like going to these places. I, I'm not sure, if, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, if at the beginning I was as considerate, conscious okay. of how you might feel in those spaces. Hmm. And I think as we got to know each other, I got to learn more about what makes you co feel comfortable, what, um, what you like to do in your free time, what spaces you like. Yeah. Um, and so I think there was a natural getting to know each other like in any relationship. The two things that helped me is one, I think you made it very easy early on. First of all, I think the fact that you had done a TED Talk, I had always kind of perceived you as an educator. Huh. Um, and so you are very kind of articulate about kind of framing <laughs> questions yeah. um, in a way that made it easier for me to ask them. Okay. Um, we had very kind of frank discussions very early on, um, even before we met in person, mm -hmm. in our conversations on Scruff, or my conversations early on. I think I felt at liberty to ask things that I didn't know um, rather than make assumptions. Parse is because of the, the there's a, a number of kind of differences mm -hmm. um, because of the differences in our age, because of the differences in where we grew up, mm -hmm. because of the differences in our gender. I think that, um, I don't know, I felt like all bets are off. Like there's no, there's no assumptions to be made and that we need to kind of ask questions or I need to ask questions. Okay. Um, and I, I've never really kind of experienced that in, I was gonna say in a relationship before. Hmm. I didn't really kind of have a relationship in a very long time. Hmm. Um, but you definitely made it easy. Um, hmm. Yeah. Thanks, babe. Oh, no, thank you. Hmm. I would like to talk about especially, you know, in this moment, being an ally to the black community. Yeah. Um, whether you are white, whether you are a non-black person of color. You know, and on last week's episode, I think I think I went in particular on non-black people of color because I'm seeing a lot of my peers who are non-black people of color um, sort of fall back on uh, not having to do anything because, um, oh, well, you mean people of color. This, this is an issue that affects people of color. And right now, this is an issue that affects black people first and foremost. Yeah. And if you have a knee-jerk reaction to simply centering black people and having me say black instead of people of color, that is something worth examining. And so that's why I kind of went in on that. But I would also like to um, talk about sort of the journey towards allyship because allyship is or, you know, some other terms you've used before, like accomplice, abolitionist, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes allyship, I think, is is not enough, and there needs to be sort of a direct action that goes above and beyond. It's not enough just to say you, you know, oh, of course, you you like black people. You're, you're not racist. You like black people. Um, but what does it mean to actually support black people in a time like this? Yeah. Um, and, and that being said, neither of us are black, so I could say a bunch of things about how to support black people, but... I'm also not trying to like speak over a person who is black and my position wasn't always is you need to let black people lead on that one. Yeah. Um, that we might not be the person uh, or people to listen to uh, right now. That's not what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm, I'm not here to tell you what black people need. I'm just trying to gather fellow non-black people of color 
and say, here's what we need to do. Yeah. And say, here's what you, you know, here's what you might not be aware of. I think one of the things I like about educating and sharing sort of education from a personal perspective is that it's specifically because I am imperfect, you know, and I don't want to position myself as someone who is perfect and has a lot of answers. Mm -hmm. Because what I find with a lot of folks is that they sort of assume you are either with it or you're not. And if they are not, if they don't get it yet, they just shut down. They're like, I'm never going to get it, so I might as well not try. Yeah. And the, the thing about being an ally or an accomplice is that it, it, it requires active effort on somebody's part, on anybody's part, to educate, to uplift, to hold space, to make space, to take less space for yourself. I grew up in a predominantly black and brown neighborhood and a predominantly black and brown county. And yet we were all taught to value whiteness first in ways that like we were all racially biased towards each other, you know? And when a white student might say or do something racist towards any of us, they almost sort of got a pass for it. There was really no consequences for them. Meanwhile, like we would get to pick each other apart and that was only to their benefit. Um, we, were, we were all picking each other apart based on the color of our skin, based on the texture of our hair. I like internalized that. I have had people of color tell me my skin looks like shit. And when I say that, I mean, like, they, they said the brownness of my skin looks like the color of shit. Hmm. And I internalized that, and I wanted to lighten my skin really bad. And so I invested a lot in products that would, like, lightening soaps and lightening creams. And if only I could go back and tell that child you didn't have to do that, yeah. I would. But we can't. And I had to unlearn this sense that white is beautiful, that pale is beautiful, that, that fair skin means a fair character. No, that none of that is true. In fact, some of the most nasty people I've met and, and some of the people who have done me the most harm are white people who specifically thought they were my allies and who thought they were so good for having me around. Oh, they loved me so much. They're, they're great for having a trans friend and they would end up doing me the most harm. You know, part of, part of moving towards allyship for any community, but specifically for the black community, means having to unlearn, regardless of where I got it from, because ultimately it was instilled in all of us by a culture that values white supremacy. So how did you unlearn it? It took time. And in fact, I think it's something that I constantly have to challenge every single day. Um, you know, even growing up, like my own family, like as a child, if I was playing outside too much, like, oh, careful, don't get too dark. And I don't think I unlearned it until my, my 20s, I don't think. Um, by my 20s, I uh, had come out as a trans person and I was medically transitioning and I really didn't have the luxury of just kind of doing that and ha living a casual life. Yeah. Like a lot of trans people, my existence was politicized the second I stepped out the door because people wanted to, yeah. people would, wanted to ask questions and make comments about me and have me defend my, not just myself, but my entire community anywhere I went. And if I didn't have the answers right away, they would sort of fold their arms and sit back and say, well, I got you. I have seen through the myth of trans identity. And then that would have implications for the next trans person. And so instantly, I and a lot of trans people like me would bear the burden of having to answer for our entire community. And so I fell into activism within months of starting my transition. Even before that, I had started to like read up. And in meeting other activists, especially older activists or more seasoned activists, who would not just call me on like problematic anti-trans behaviors, because I had internalized transphobia as well. Yeah. And we can talk about that. I had, you know, 
there, there's something else in there as well. But I had also internalized feelings about myself as a person of color that I would then project onto other people of color. Um, and I didn't always get it right. It meant that some people don't talk to me. It meant that some people would really ream me out. It meant that some people would call me out on my bullshit in very vocal ways. They did not owe it to me to make me comfortable. They didn't even owe it to me to tell me what's what. They didn't owe it to me to show me the way. But they did. And I had to, you know, at first you have those knee-jerk reactions of like, but, uh, but, but I have people of color friends and I am a person of color and I can't possibly be. No. Everyone can internalize feelings from their oppressor mm-hmm. that make them feel a certain way, especially if it's all you know. Especially yeah. if you grow up in a culture that tells you that this is true, then it's really it's easy to like embody that and then practice it upon other people. And it required a lot of soul searching on my part. Yeah. It required a lot of reading on my part. Reading of, peop- of other perspectives that are not my own specifically black perspectives, specifically immigrant perspectives, indigenous perspectives, indigenous American perspectives. Um, I'm going to put a little asterisk in that because I have a lot of feelings about Latinidad. That is not for today. Uh Having to actively seek out voices from communities that, okay, yeah, I have seen those people in my daily life, but have I ever actually listened to their histories and their lived experiences? And at that time, as an early 20-something, the answer was mostly no. Yeah. And, and in a way that kind of forces us to kind of look at our own stuff. Yeah. Look at our own kind of assumptions, yeah. biases, behaviors, yeah. and our interactions and relationships with other people yeah. who look and think like us yeah. and kind of confirm our worldview in a way that, um, that we need to change. And it requires an active mindfulness of, for example, I am a light-skinned person of color and I might get more access to spaces uh, to jobs, to opportunities, than somebody who's not. Mm-hmm. Simply by the fact that my light skinness is is valued in our white supremacist society, that people consider that more beautiful, and people ascribe certain traits to that of goodness, of innocence, of intelligence, of work ethic. Having to be constantly conscious to this day, it's not like a one and done. It's not like read Citizen by Claudia Rankine and you're good. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Actually, read it. <laughs> but also read some other things. It's not like, you know, one and done. It's not, I've seen, um, I've seen Pose, so now I know what it's like to be a trans woman. <laughs> Whatever. I think if anything you know, else, it should, my experience is often the opposite. Mm-hmm. That the more I learn about something, the more I realized how much I don't know about the yes. experience of somebody else. yes. Actually, yeah, that's, that's, that's my point, is like the more, I would, the more I would learn, the more I would read, the more I would consume, I would feel myself absorbing that knowledge, but in absorbing that knowledge, you have to realize that you didn't have it before. Yeah. I feel like this is a very long and rambling answer, but like, you know, for me, it was very much the same way in terms of reaching out to other communities who are not like me. You know, to even, even and I was talking about this with somebody uh, just this week, that I had to unlearn harmful Um, toxic masculinity that I internalized specifically when I first got introduced to the trans masculine community. Hmm. Now, mind you, this was like in the late aughts, 2010 and on, you know? There was still a lot of like hazing that would go on if you were transitioning medically, Hmm. right? Or, you know, if you were trans period, but especially if you were transitioning. A lot of sizing each other up to see, are you manly enough? And part of 
being told that you are or are not manly enough is that if you don't pass these people's tests, you know, other trans men, if you don't pass their test, they'll say all kinds of hateful things like, well, then you're not really trans and you're making us look bad yeah. if you can't, you know, meet our standard. You know, you're, you're, you're being a stereotype, you're too visible, and in being visible, you're saying something about the rest of us. Now, I'm not making generalizations about all trans men, but in the spaces I was in, in order to conform and get the validation that I wanted, because I needed, I wasn't getting it at yeah, home. Yeah. I wasn't, I was losing friends, I wasn't getting it there. I wanted validation from someone, and I thought, well, if not from my community, then we're from. So I tried desperately to conform, and I think in doing so, I know in doing so, I internalized feelings of toxic masculinity and femphobia and misogyny that would take me years to undo. And, and I wouldn't even say like homophobia, but like internalized homophobia towards myself. As a gay trans man, getting told by other trans men that that meant I wasn't really trans really fucked me up in a lot of ways. Just hearing you say that, it made my head spin a little and bit. And then, it still makes my head spin. Now that I'm on the other side of it, and now that I've you know moved through that, and it, it makes me like, how can anyone think this? And then meeting other gay trans men and trying to date them and them being like, you must be this mask to ride this ride. Ugh. You know, and, and having them tell me, okay, well, I want to date you, but you're still not masculine enough for me. I had to unlearn that so hard. And I had to find new trans men that wouldn't do that. To this day, I'm still rooting out trans men who do that. I'm like, hmm, I have no time to educate you anymore. I have devoted too much time to that. If you're going to stay over here and you're going to be misogynistic and transmisogynistic and femphobic and homophobic all because you want to be stealth and protect your masculinity, the fact that you want to protect your masculinity and that requires you to step on other people along the way, I can't fuck with you. You know, if you are a member of a marginalized community and in order to protect yourself from oppression, you step on other people, you cannot call yourself an ally. Yeah. You cannot call yourself an accomplice. You can't call yourself a friend to anybody else who's not like you. Yeah. And I think, and I appreciate you saying all of that because yeah. it's, it really does for me, like I've said this before, it really does kind of start with our own kind of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. um, for me to kind of be a good ally means I have to acknowledge in the ways that I've not been a good ally. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I remember when we first started dating, um, you know, I would talk about how I'm, you know, I'm not the most kind of masculine man. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I had to kind of stop saying that because there was so much kind of loaded in that um, statement, and mm -hmm. I have to acknowledge any whether you th perceive yourself as a kind of football watching, cigar smoking, bearded, masculine man, you move throughout the world with the benefits of a masculine man. Mm. And so you can walk around saying, Oh, I'm not masculine, um, but then read the benefits um, afforded to masculine men. And so I had to kind of like own the fact that I, I, I enjoy that privilege. Yeah. And for me to kind of be a good ally um, to all kinds of people who don't enjoy that, that privilege, um, to, um, all, to all women, to all kind of femme men, mm. um, I had to kind of acknowledge that. It's the same thing. It's interesting. I remember I used to live in Harlem, mm -hmm. and I remember literally one day I'd gone into a, an ATM, um, that little kind of vestibule, mm -hmm. um, and there's like a handful of people, and... I was the only, there was me and one white person and a few other kind of black uh, kind of patrons in the store, mm -hmm. in, the, in the bank. And the, 
white person looked at me with this look of, oh my gosh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Whoa. Fast forward, I'm in a coffee shop, also in Harlem, mm -hmm. and there's only one black person. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me with this look of, oh my gosh, I, finally, at least I'm not, I'm the, not only the only one. one. And I thought to myself, okay, this is, I'm the same skin, same day. Um, and it just reminded me of the access I have to different spaces, um, to perceptions that I have when I walk around, and the privilege that I walk around with um, mm -hmm. as um, a person of color with light skin, yeah. um, with all of my identities, um, as someone who has the privilege of working from home, as someone who has the privilege of having a job, um, as someone who has the privilege of the experiences and the education that I have, um, as someone who has had the um, experiences of kind of growing up with the way that I did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I walk around with a lot of identities, yeah. my kind of, my privilege and my vulnerabilities all at once. Um, and I've, and I look back at some of the ways I've kind of fallen short as an ally and it kind of makes me, it makes me cringe. Um, but in a way, I hope that kind of motivates me to do better mm -hmm. now that I know better. Ooh, I want to say last year, Mm -hmm. I want to say within the last kind of six months, um, I worked with an African-American woman um, mm -hmm. and, a, um, and a white man. And it came to the point where the way that um, that kind of working relationship became very toxic um, with this white guy in a way that I was trying to be kind of empathetic and, you know, and diplomatic and um, all those kind of kind things. Um, and she kind of sat me down and she said, I love you dearly, mm -hmm. but the more that you defend him, the more toxic you of an environment you create for mm. women like me. Mm. And it hit me like a ton of bricks Yeah, because that was not my intent. Um, I didn't see how my relationship with him in any way affected my relationship with her um, until she said it. Mm -hmm. And... And, you know, she, she could see the kind of reaction on my face and um, was kind of inclined to apologize. And I was like, do not apologize. You didn't say anything that was not accurate. Um, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I resonate. You're right. Um, and it made me think, okay, Eddie, now that you know, what are you going to do with that? Um, if you have acted this way, behaved in this way, um, if in your attempt to be kind and forgiving and uh, conciliatory has resulted in creating a toxic environment for black women. Mm. How are you going to change that? Yeah. What if it requires you to be unkind, mm. unforgiving, um, or somewhere in between? Um, what if that's the only way you've known how to be personally and professionally, mm. and you're now required to be or act in a way that is new and uncomfortable for you? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, I think the fact that I heard the fact that it came from her someone I love and respect mm -hmm. made it easier to hear easier and harder mm -hmm. um, but it did make me wonder kind of like you know how many times how many situations I may have been in or put other people in where they didn't say that to me mm. and I just continued to act in a way that I thought was kind to some people huh. and ended up having a very unkind affect them other people yeah and um and that's why i never want to be too comfortable in my allyship that's why i love the um 
in my work recently, we've been kind of uh, one of the resources that we use is this racism scale. Um, and we'll put yeah. the, have you ever seen this? There's different kind of, no. there's different kind of visualizations of um, the kind of scale of white supremacy. And I like the racism scale because it's pretty comprehensive um, from like A to Z. Okay. And what's interesting is, I mean, on the far extreme is like the kind of white terrorist. Mm -hmm. um, and on the far extreme on the other side is the abolitionist. Mm. Um, and most people are going to fall somewhere in the middle. The realm of allyship is actually very wide, and it's somewhere close to abolitionist and somewhere close to terrorist. Mm. And I'm thinking, wow, so the difference between an ally and a terrorist is actually not as much. Um, and the idea... Define that one for me. I'd love to know like what makes the difference. Well, because I think, well, I mean, especially when you look at this scale, a lot of people like to think of, oh, where, where am I on this scale? Uh-huh. And the truth is most people, if not all people, are going to fluctuate on that scale at any given moment. So okay. it's not like, oh, I'm an ally. So, mm, you probably need to kind of qualify that statement saying, I'm an ally for this community in these moments in this way. Yeah. That's probably as accurate a description of allyship as you can kind of give yourself. Because the truth is, if we're a different situation, a different community, yeah. um, a different behavior, you may not be uh, as much of an ally and you may be much further to the other extreme than you're comfortable with mm. if you don't acknowledge it. Yeah. And so the idea that our allyship is not a fixed identity, mm -hmm. I mean, I am Puerto Rican, that's not going to change. Right. Um, that's an identity or that's, well, that's a whole other conversation. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but there's certain things that, um, yeah, that's a category. But allyship is is a role. Allyship mm. is, is, is something that you kind of, you have to kind of continually earn. An accomplice is someone who's willing to give up some of the benefits of their own privilege. Um, someone who is willing to use their bodies and their privilege mm -hmm. um, in defense of other people. Mm -hmm. Who is willing to kind of put themselves at risk. Who is willing to say, you know what? I am willing to lose relationships with my family by having difficult conversations with them because I have the option of losing my family, whereas other people don't. Mm. That's a privilege that I have. I can stand up or not. Um, I have the option of turning down jobs. You know, I'm not going to sit on that panel if I'm going to be the only person of color. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to sit in that panel if there are no black people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to take this job because I know personally people are more qualified. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to let you use me as a way of getting yourself off the racist hook. Mm -hmm. Because if mm -hmm. you hire a light-skinned um presentable, whatever you perceive me to be, mm -hmm. it makes you feel good about yourself in a way that you don't have to kind of look at your stuff as an individual or as an institution. And when I take that job, when I accept that honor or whatever, I'm kind of perpetuating that. I had a situation entirely Ooh. like that. Uh, before I get into that, though, I want to pull up the racism scale. I just want to visually describe the racism scale to folks who can't see it yet. And we're going to link it in the show notes that, um, like Eddie said, it does range from on one side, you've got terrorism. On the far, uh, 
you know, the other opposite side, you've got abolitionist. And then you've got several things in between, including uh, overt racism, subconscious racism, indifference, denial, uh, white savior, performative ally, ally. And, and, so the, and there are a couple of things in between. And it also has this range starting with indifference and then moving through performative ally that indicates feelings of white guilt can lead to and compound many of these behaviors. So for example, under terrorism, you know, you, you know, the things that are sort of underneath each of these classifications are thoughts or feelings or sentiments that a person might have, you know, if they fall into these categories. So for example, under terrorism, we have, I would kill a black person simply for being black. You've got whites are the superior race. And then we move towards things, and these are the things that I want to highlight because I think a lot of people don't realize when they fall into this category. I want to move towards uh, feelings like indifference, justification, denial. Um, and can we pause right here? Yes. I'm not a racist, but it's closer to terrorism than it's not even on the same page mm -hmm. as ally. And I feel like if, if it, people saw that that kind of language, it makes them closer to the most overt racist yeah. than the most kind of near ally. Yeah. Yeah. It's under, it's under the category called subconscious racism which is closer to white terrorist than it is to ally by a lot. You know, and then you move into things of indifference, defensive, uh, denying, where it's, but how can I be privileged if I am, and then insert marginalized identity. Um, so this person doesn't sort of understand the intersections of identity through things like, oh, it's just a joke, or, but what about black on black crime? What about reverse racism? Again, these things still fall closer to racism than to allyship. And then you move towards, you know, we're moving closer to allyship, but we're not there yet. In fact, we're still, we're still pretty far from it. You've got the category of white savior, where they might start saying, oh, there are plenty of successful people of color. They just need to work harder. There's no need for people of color to have their own safe spaces because we are all one. There's mm. only one race, the human race. And then you move into what they're calling woke justification and then, and then into performative ally. Performative ally gets into, I will help you, but only if I lead. Being involved in this will help my reputation. I expect praise. Ooh. I expect a blue ribbon for doing the bare minimum. Yep. And it's only when you... We haven't even gotten a true allyship yet, <laughs> but we're getting out of the feelings of white guilt. We're moving towards awareness, where it's my experience as a white person is drastically different than that of a person of color. And yes, my life as a poor white person has been hard, but it isn't as hard as if I were poor and a person of color. And now, now we're getting to allyship, where it's systemic racism is very real and needs to be ended. And then towards abolitionism, I will put my health, safety, and freedom on the line to fight for people of color. I will let them lead and not try to be at the center. I was on a call a couple of weeks ago. It is a call on which many arts-based institutions in the area, they get on to sort of talk about the um, opening of the city and what are they going to do to prepare for the opening. And, you know, in the aftermath of what happened to George Floyd, we had a, we had a meeting a lot of the white folks on the call, it, it is predominantly white folks from predominantly white-led institutions. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of the white folks on the call were saying things like we, we're gonna stand by people of color, we are in solidarity with the black community, a lot of like poetic things about allyship. And then um, an acquaintance of mine, uh, somebody I really respect, I actually did a fellowship at her institution, a black Puerto Rican woman spoke up and said, hey, love it, love what everyone's saying. We've been on these calls for months now. The reality is all of these funding cuts that we're talking about are gonna affect institutions of color first. The reality is this, this pandemic has affected people of color, black specifically, first and foremost. And so it's not enough just to say you stand with us. What more are you gonna do to really prove that you are an accomplice to our community? Are you gonna divest from your racist board members? Are you gonna stop accepting money from these like so-called philanthropic institutions that have had problematic anti-black behaviors in the past? What are you actually gonna do? You gotta be willing to give something up. And instantly, many, many people backpedaled and said, well, well, we're, we're producing art and Art is inherently political, so we're doing enough by producing our art and questioning and being politically engaged. And everyone was falling all over themselves. The exact same people who were saying that they were going to stand with black people not 10 minutes ago, suddenly backpedaling. I would love to see this scale, like in a visual kind of app form, so that during this phone call, you Just could like a see the scale boop, going like, like boop, you're racist, doo -doo 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 like right. performative ally, doo -doo 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 defensive. That is performative allyship. Just saying this and saying, oh, we stand with, but you're not actually willing to do anything. But then it skews all the way to the other end by the end of the conversation. It's, yeah. It's, it's performative at its best, and then it just goes downhill from there. Yeah, yeah. And I think in, in most people, um, who were saying those things, they would assume that they were in the squarely in the ally category. Oh, I'm and sure they no all think. How kind of I'm sure they, they even now they all think that they're good. kind of go into my little mailbox and see what we have in here. That's that's the sound effect of him opening the mailbox. That's him taking out the letters. In my mind, it was like an owl flying in through the window. There's an owl coming in. Eddie, you're a wizard. Fuck J.K. Rowling. But each week we will select a letter or letters or from letters. our inbox and read them on the show. So if you'd like to send us a letter, you can email us at housewarmingpartypod at gmail.com. We'll read it on next week's episode. This letter comes from Layla. It reads, how do you talk to a white person whose allyship is purely performative? I would um, hand them the racism scale and <laughs> let them know exactly where they stand right now. Because I think a lot of it is, um, I think people know. Yeah. Um, when their allyship is performative. I think they don't know that other people know. Yeah. And I think by kind of naming it um, and by kind of naming what you're seeing and how it's hitting you without any assumptions into their psyche, what their intentions, what their assumptions, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I can tell you when you do this, it reads to me like this and it affects me in this way. Ija. Yeah. Ija. 
And if you need to say anything more, mm. they're not going to hear it. Right. If you need to say anything less, it probably didn't need to be said in the first place. It's going to be a difficult conversation because you're going to get a lot of the white tears and guilt. You're going to get a lot of that knee-jerk, especially if this is performative. You're going to get that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, I was just trying to help. So much for trying to help. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. So I might as well not. Meh. You know, you're, you're going to get that a lot. Um, but when, you know, as we talked about in the last segment, being an ally yourself means that you kind of got to be willing to give something up. And maybe the thing that you need to give up is your relationship to white people who are not actual allies to people of color and, and black people right now. Because in sort of silently like approving of their behavior, even if you, you kind of like scroll past and you're rolling your eyes but you're not addressing the issue, silence is complicity in this case, in many cases, but definitely in this case. It's a difficult conversation to have. To wrap it up, I think that a lot of what we have said before kind of already touches on that. Yeah. A lot of the conversation you have is going to depend on the person and what they did that you considered performative. I recommend, although you don't necessarily need to do this, it might be better to have that conversation with them privately because they may be less likely to react with white guilt and tears. If you do it publicly, they're going to feel more attacked and more insecure, and so they are. the tears are going to fall, and then the court of internet opinion is going to be on their side, and they're going to look at you as, how dare you, you're, you're raging, crazy, angry at them. There's a great book, actually, called Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah Schulman. Uh, one of the things it actually touches on, it, it covers a lot that I think, I think you should really read it, but one of the things it touches on is this sense of how does an abuser get out of a situation they, in this in this specific situation they're they're talking about like when somebody is calling somebody out for perceived abuse or a perceived transgression how does the abuser the manipulator the offending party get out of that situation they do it by spinning it such that being called out is in itself abusive yeah. and what does that often look like so for example if the conversation that you want to have went this way, you might say, uh, hey, like your allyship is performative. However you say it, they will spin it such that, oh, your language towards them was aggressive. They only ever tried to help. And now this person that I considered my friend is attacking me for, you know, they're, they're going to resort to violent language that paints you as the aggressor, which then turns people against you puts you on the defensive for saying, no, I wasn't attacking anyone. I just wanted to call it out. You might even, if you want to save yourself from the, the anger that's directed towards you, you might even be made to apologize and say, I'm sorry I made you feel this way. And all of that backpedaling that they're making you do gets them off of the hook for what they did, which was the actual transgression. Yeah. If that makes sense. I'm, you know. And I think for a lot of people who's... Um, Allyship is performative. It's usually, in my experience, in their words and communication, mm -hmm. um, whereas true allyship is in behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always going to look for that consistency. Right. So if, if someone posts something that seems a little disingenuous to me, yeah. my first question is going to be, but are they doing the work? Right. 
And if they're doing the work, then they may still be performative, but I, my reaction would be different. Right. If I look at their life and go, but I actually never see them doing anything but post right. about allyship, then I'm more inclined to think it's performative and kind of and address it in those terms. Right. Because I feel like otherwise you're kind of talking past each other. They're going to think that they said the right thing and you're going to say, yeah, I'm not talking about what you said. Yeah. I'm talking about you backing it up. Yeah. Um, the yeah. last time I had had this conversation publicly was with a no longer friend who um, took a photo of a homeless individual who they had given, I think, food or money to. I don't get that. Oh, my God. It, they took a photo of the person, wrote out a whole story about how they gave them food and money, and a lot of people were replying to them like, oh, you're so generous. Like, And I responded. Uh, I made the mistake. This is why I'm advising you to do it privately. <laughs> I responded publicly. Like, and I didn't think my language was aggressive. And I said, hey, you know, great that you gave them food or, or whatever. I don't know if they would appreciate somebody taking a photo of them especially like if they are this person is on the street this person like probably doesn't want to be made to like doesn't not want to be used to make you feel yeah. good and right away got the very much like why are you attacking me for doing this very good thing other people who don't even know me like oh oh and also because the the person posting identifies as a woman and I don't I was being told that I was mansplaining allyship um and a bunch of other and a bunch of other things that I was like, oh, I was the aggressor. Whereas I'm like, no, you're using a homeless individual of color, mind you, as a prop mm -hmm. to make yourself feel good. And so I don't don't speak to that individual anymore. Um, but it's a very tough conversation to have because a performative ally is going to fall back on that guilt, the guilt of knowing that you are right. And the performance is defined by the audience. Yeah. And if the audience isn't buying it, then they're going to freak out. Mm -hmm. And so if you take the audience away, they freak out. They freak out. So it's going to be a tough conversation. But as we've said before, I think being an ally, tr true ally means giving something up. And I think that maybe in this I think that maybe in this situation, the thing that you are giving up is a relationship to a white person who is not actually doing anything beneficial for black lives right now, but wants to reap the benefits of appearing to have done that. Maybe the thing you sacrifice is cutting that person out of your life. And is that so much of a sacrifice? Is it? Well, that's the only letter we have today. If you'd like to send us a letter, you can email us at housewarmingpartypod at gmail.com, and we'll read it on next week's episode. We love getting letters, and yes. so I loved, I loved getting this one from someone that we know, and so mm -hmm. please... Send us an email. And good luck. Now it's time for our Neighborhood Watch. Each week we'll shout out a person, an organization, an event, something in our community that we think you'd like to know about. Today's shout out goes to House Lives Matter. House Lives Matter is a community organizing and mobilizing initiative created for and by the house ball community. Comprised of sexual and gender minority people of color, their mission is to improve health and wellness, build alliances, 
abide deeply in our ancestral and historical roots, and provide mentoring to create leaders who take direct action for social change. They've even set up a COVID-19 relief fund specifically for the houseball community. So if you say you love Pose and Paris is burning, another asterisk can go in that one. (laughs) But you haven't lifted a finger to support those communities, here's your chance. And we'll put their info in the show notes. If you know someone that deserves a shout out, email us at housewarmingpartypod and we might feature them on the show. That's today's Neighborhood Watch. going to do it for us this week. We'd like to thank Jace Move at the J Squad for letting us use his remix of the Jefferson's theme song. You can find them on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Music. Damn Jace Move. <laughs> Check out their website at jsquadbeats.com to learn more. We'd also like to thank Wooly Bears for designing our cover art. You can find him online at woollybears.com. That's Wooly Bears with a Z. On Instagram, at Wooly Bears with a Z. Or if you have a few bucks to spare, you can support him on Patreon at patreon.com slash woollybears. Speaking of Patreon, Housewarming Party is just one of the podcasts I'm rolling out this year. If you want to support the show and help us continue to deliver quality digital content, check out my Patreon and consider donating. You can find me at patreon.com slash sammyfigs. That's patreon.com slash s-a-m-y-figs. That's patreon.com slash S-A-M-Y figs. S-A-M-Y figs. We'll put everything in the show notes. So if you like what you're hearing and want to support the show in a non-monetary way, please tell a friend about the show. Better yet, you can now rate us on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Positive ratings boost our show and help others to find it. So until next time, I'm Eddie Gonzalez Novoa. And I'm Sami Figueredo. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. In perfect unison. <laughs> yes. Love you. Gentle. It's so gentle. Such a tender high five. Oh, it's like a high four point five. <laughs> <laughs> but rate us a high five on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.